Good morning. I want you to know that I, I stand here this morning thankful. I am thankful that it was under the ministry of this church that God was gracious to me and saved me from my sin. I'm thankful for the years of this, of this church because that in your support of the ministry that is taking place in, in Providence, Rhode Island, it would not happen apart from this church. So thank you. Thankful to be able to bring the Word of God to you this morning. Thank you, Stephen, for, for this privilege and, and for the lack of pressure I now feel for preaching your favorite verse in all of Scripture. It's... I have about a hundred favorites. I'm kidding. In fact, I, I don't feel pressure. This is, this is God's Word. This is about Him. And so let's go to Him and pray. Father, your word is truth. And Jesus prayed for us in the garden that we would be sanctified by the truth. And so, Father, as we open up your word now, we we pray that your spirit would in fact do that. That he would sanctify us. That he would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that would be receptive to what he has said through your servant Paul. And so, God, we ask for your help. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember the first time I watched the movie Rudy. Everyone knows it is an inspirational movie. And it is inspirational because it's based on a true story. And I remember getting really excited about that pregame pep talk. You know the one I'm talking about? The one right before Rudy is going to play his only game for the Fighting Irish, his last and only game for the Fighting Irish. I was so ready to get fired up by whatever that coach was going to say. I love those, those moments in, in, in real life. I love them in movies as well. And I remember thinking at the end of that pep talk, that was pretty lame. I, I remember thinking, and you may disagree, but... The shouting in the locker room just didn't quite fit that pep talk. What about that pep talk got those guys fired up? But they went out and they won the game. Uh, Rudy didn't need a pep talk to go out and make the last sack of the game. The team didn't need this pep talk to, to win. The truth is that pep talks don't win games or championships. Players are motivated by something much deeper, something much, much greater, a love for the game, a a passion and and vision for standing together victoriously at the end. Pep talks really aren't that useful. Well, when it comes to life, all the lives that we live, uh, no pep talk will do. Certainly, living faithfully as a Christian in this world cannot come down to a strong emotional appeal. Uh, certainly not a guilt trip. We need a compelling theological vision for how God intends to glorify us, or for glorify Himself uh, today and forever. And so, what I want to do today is to look to God's Word for that compelling vision. And then I want to bring 
the word to you in such a way that, that we make application to this, this church's mission and tie it to the, to the overall mission of God to glorify Himself among the nations. But I want to do it with a special emphasis on your mission right here in your particular mission field and tie it to the church's mission to glorify God among the nations. Because as it's been said already a few times, we have all been sent. So I just want to get us in that mindset right now, not for another pep talk on a missions conference Sunday, but for us to look to God's Word for something greater, much deeper and more meaningful than, than any emotional appeal might do to you. How does God intend to glorify Himself among the nations, including right here in Hamilton and through you as an individual? Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, uh, we want you to know that we are glad that you're here. I, I count it as a privilege to speak to you this morning. And I just want you to, just right now, not tune out because you showed up to church on a missions Sunday, uh, just assuming that this now has nothing to do with you or to your life. Uh, in fact, I, I think this is a good day for you to come. And, and I want you to, 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 to come away from this knowing that this, this actually applies to your life. And so here's a good way to listen to this sermon if you're not a Christian. Just consider your own purpose. Just consider your own purpose in your life. What, what is the driving force in your life for what you do? How does that get expressed in this world? And to what end? I hope what you find in today's message is a, is a purpose for your life that, that begins and ends with God. I pray that for all of us. And so in order to do that, uh, I want us to, to, to let the Spirit take us on a, on a tour of Ephesians and eventually arrive at the, the wonder of Ephesians 3.10 and just, and just gaze at the beauty of, of the truth that we find there. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you in the pews there, you can find that on page 976. 976. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, we're going to be going over a lot of text here, so it would be helpful for you to know that the large, bold numbers are the chapters, smaller numbers are the verses. And right now we want to look at chapter 3, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We want to spend our time now in the book of Ephesians trying to unpack the meaning of this verse. And here's what I want us to understand. And this will serve as an outline for the sermon if you're taking notes. Number one, understand God's plan in salvation. Understand God's plan in salvation. Number two, understand God's plan in the church. And number three, understand the mission of the church. That's going to function as our outline. Understand God's plan in salvation, His plan in the church, and, his, and the mission of the church. So number one, understand God's plan in salvation. It starts right off in chapter one with a, a, a beautiful description of our salvation that we just don't have time to unpack, but... But just, just take this in for a minute. Verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in, the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. In Christ, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. In Christ, we are holy and blameless before God. In Christ, we have been adopted as sons, as children of the living God. We have redemption. In Christ, we have forgiveness. Friend, I don't know what you came in here this morning what kind of troubles or burdens that you've come in here with. But if you are a Christian, you have reason to say this morning, it is well with my soul. I am right with God. I am blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, and I am right with God. Praise God. That's what God has done in saving us. But that's not all that God has done in saving us. Verse 9 making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, here it is, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. You see, here's what God is up to in saving people, in redeeming and forgiving people, in lavishing His love upon people. The content of the mystery of God's will, verse 9, here's what he did in saving people. So the main point of God's salvific plan is revealed right there in verse 10. He's bringing everything together in Christ. Both things in heaven and on earth in submission to Him such that there is order and unity like there was when God first created the world. The way that He meant it to be. Before sin entered the world through man, there was order, unity, and peace in all of creation to the glory of God. It was a world filled with people that brought God glory. It just, it just sung His praises. It just sung His goodness. We can, we can see some of that even now as we just go outside. You just look at this world we create, He created. And we know that He is good. We know that He is loving. Creation declares that. And it was perfectly so between God and creation, God and man and woman. But sin ruined that. Creation fell from that perfect state. We did too. And yet, in Christ now, through our salvation in Christ and what He has done, Jesus redeems that. He is renewing that And therefore, our salvation brings glory to God. God's new creation has begun in us through Jesus' work on the cross, and He is bringing it to completion now. He's bringing it to a point where, where Jesus is supreme in everything, and everyone finds its being in Him. 
to His everlasting praise. Friends, if God is God, then there is nothing more right in the universe than for Him to be glorified by everything in the universe. That's just, that's just simple logic. If God is God, that is right. We, just, we, we must love what is, what is good and what is right. And that is right. Jesus is worthy of our praise. And friends, if God is God, then it only makes sense that life lived in His presence according to His ways is the fullest expression of life itself and therefore promises the most joy to His praise. This is the promise behind what's being described in verse 10. Heaven is the new world in which God's presence and rule is perfectly known among the people that He has saved in Christ. Friends, that's our hope. It's, it's the world, it's the life that every person in this room this morning longs for. And it's our inheritance, according to verse 11 and 12. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of His glory. Wow, talk about a purpose in salvation. To be the praise of God's glory. Now, how does all that happen? How do sinners become the praise of God's glory? Well, continuing our tour of Ephesians chapter 2, look, look at how the gospel is laid out in chapter 2 of Ephesians. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind." But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. By grace. This is, this is not by works. We were all born into this world in such a condition that we loved ourselves more than God. That we would, we would live unto ourselves and, and follow the, the, the passions of our flesh and live according to what we think. Rather than living to the glory of God, that, that one simple truth in all the creation that must be right. We didn't do it. None of us have. All of us, by nature, are born into this world children of wrath. We have committed a, a divine offense in not living to the praise of God's glory. And we rightly deserve from God's holy eyes to suffer for eternity in hell under His wrath as a just penalty for our sin. But God, who is rich in mercy, who loved us, sent Jesus to, to come into this world and live a perfect life to the glory of God, one, one that deserved God's blessing and favor. One deserved to, to live in God's presence forever. Jesus was sinless. He, he lived the life that we could not. And then on the cross, Jesus took upon Himself 
the sins of all those who would ever put their faith in Him and follow Him by faith. And there on the cross, God poured out His wrath upon Jesus for sins that that we committed so that we might be counted righteous in His sight. Credited the life of Jesus that we might be holy and blameless before God. Forgiven. And we know that this is the case because Jesus is alive. He has risen. That penalty was paid in full. And this is not because of anything that we can do. It is by grace. Verse 8 You've been, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friend, if you're here this morning, the good news of Christianity, what we call the gospel, is that though you, have, you can do nothing on your own to save yourself from God's wrath, Jesus has done it for you by living the life that you cannot. And it's available to you if you will simply Put your trust in Him. Do not look to yourselves or what you could do, but look to Christ. And He will save you. Well, that's how God begins to fulfill His plan of salvation. But now we must understand God's plan in those that He has saved, the church. Which brings us to the second point. Understand God's plan in the church. Understand God's plan in the church. We're just working our way towards Ephesians 3.10 here. The first gospel implication that we see as we get ready to finish chapter 2 and get into chapter 3 is that the dividing wall of hostility that society had imposed between Jew and Gentiles is now gone. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." In Christ, through our faith in Him, what the Gospel does is he takes, it takes people who are hostile to God and hostile to one another, and it makes peace between them all. The, the language here is that there are two people. There's Jew and Gentile, and they were hostile towards one another. They wouldn't even eat with one another. They would avoid one another's presence. They had no reason to get together. Just culturally, they were different. There's just doesn't make any sense for them to get together. But you have these two people, and the language here is not that you have one group over here and the other has to like sort of come and be a part of it. Or the one comes over here and does it that way. No, there's the, he's taking them and through his blood, dying for them and bringing them to God, one new creation, one new man, completely different, is now created so that they are one and living in peace and unity. They are together in Christ. And this unity is so profound that he even calls it a mystery. In chapter 3, verse 3, hidden for generations, but now made known. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So again, you had the Jewish people on the one hand that God had, had given His promises to and and had poured out His blessings upon and brings the Messiah through. And then you have Gentiles, which are just all non-Jews. 
who are now included in that promise. They are members of the same body, co-heirs together. Now, why do this? Why create unity between people with nothing in common except for Christ? We'll look at chapter 3, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. He has brought these people together in saving them so that through the church, God's manifold wisdom might be made known. The church. Seems like an odd place to introduce the most institutional aspect of religion. But it is through the church, through being the church, in her essence, that God's manifold wisdom is put on display. What is the manifold wisdom of God? Well, it's chapter 1, verses 3 through 12 that we read earlier. It's that multifaceted reality of our salvation in Christ, which culminates in everything being brought together in perfect harmony, unity, peace, under the Lordship of Christ to the praise of God's glorious grace. A local church puts that on display through her life together. Together and only together, they display God's character. It's together as that they display something of His love and His mercy, His forgiveness. And it's together that they display what Christ has done in redeeming sinners to Himself, to God. You see, the church isn't fundamentally about instruction or about singing worship songs. It's about a community of people who share Christ in common and on that basis live together in unity and love and in so doing give praise to God. Instruction fuels that community. Praise is the response. But the core is loving community for the praise of God. That is the very thing that shows off our salvation in Christ. That is what displays the wisdom of God. The the church being a forgiven, redeemed, changed, holy, and renewed people together in unity reveals the content of God's mystery that He accomplished in Christ and that He is accomplishing, which is to bring everything together under the Lordship of Jesus. That's why Paul follows up verse 10 with verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So think back to what Jesus said in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new command I give to you, to love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another as I have loved you. Not just loving anyone, but loving one another. The Apostle John puts it even more bluntly, saying, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. Love between Christians isn't just an optional part of the Christian life. It is necessary. In fact, it's how God intends to show off his perfect wisdom. When Christians who have nothing in common except for Christ 
love each other in ways that the world would never conceive, well, this shows off of God's perfect plan in the gospel and the power of the gospel. And the rest of the book of Ephesians plays this out in the most practical terms. Paul talks about the importance of unity in chapter 4 and how our spiritual gifts are intended to serve the unity of the body of Christ. He talks about encouraging each other in chapter 5 and then redefines societal relationships between husband and wife, parents and children, employer and employees, in terms of this kind of supernatural love that we should find in the church. And so as we, before we go any further, I just want to, want to get this understanding of what the church is supposed to be. And it's as if, if, if God was to, to, to pour out his love and, and mercy from heaven in the gospel, then, then, then the structure in which the gospel would be caught is the church. Uh, the gospel sort of takes on that form. God is one, right? Three, three persons in perfect unity and love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the grace of God poured out on us creates something that looks like himself, a church of many people, yet one body living together in perfect unity and love. And friends, this is how God has always intended to glorify Himself. It is through a people. And not just a people in one place, but a people who would fill the earth with His glory. Who live in perfect peace and harmony underneath His rule throughout the world and therefore enjoy His blessings to the praise of His glory. So, just going to take a tour of the Bible now. If you think back to creation with Adam and Eve, God makes them in His image. He says, reflect me. We're going to live in perfect harmony together. You have everything that you could possibly want in this world, and I want you to fill the earth and subdue it. Fill it with my image all over the world and live under my rule so that the world will be filled with God's glory. And yet we know that Adam and Eve failed to do that. They failed to image him rightly. And so God begins his plan of redemption. He calls out Abraham with a promise. And he says to Abraham, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless the nations. More numerous than the stars will there be people on this world, on this earth, that will bring glory to myself. I will bless the nations. And once again, they, the earth will be filled with my glory. He's, he's starting over. And of course, he brings about the nation of, of Israel. And, and then at Mount Sinai, he, he gives Israel the, the law. And he says, here, live out my law. And as you live out my law, you will be a light to the nations. Of course, we know from the Old Testament that Israel fails to do that. But God has not given up on his plan to glorify himself among the world. He promises a Messiah. A Messiah who would come and recreate his people. And what does God say in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6? He says to his servant, the Messiah, It's not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob. I will make you a light to the nations, to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus comes and he does what we read about in Ephesians 2. He creates a new people in his blood through the work of, his, uh, through the, work of the cross. He does the necessary work of bringing sinners into fellowship with God. And before he leaves, in Matthew 28, he says, Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. In other words, go and fill the earth with people who will look like me, God. People in my image. 
so that I might be praised from every corner of the earth. And Paul goes on and he makes that his mission. He plants churches among the Gentiles and then risks his life to make sure that those Gentiles give to the Jerusalem church of Jews in order to display the unity that they have in Christ. Fast forward to the end of time and what is the vision of heaven that we get from the Apostle John? This is where all of history is going. Revelation 7-9 After this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language which no one could number standing before the throne and before the Lamb and they cried out in a loud voice Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Friends, this is what God's salvation looks like fulfilled. It's one one bride made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation living under the lordship of Jesus to the praise of His glory. Just catch the language. It's it's oneness. It's unity. It's, It's peace with God to His praise. Friends, the local church is a is a small expression of that. It's a microcosm of God's plan fulfilled. A preview of heaven's glory. A faint one, no doubt. A rough draft. But that's what it is. At least that's what it's to be. And so now I want us to think about our mission as the church. I want to serve Hamilton and the surrounding community by helping us think about how we live out our salvation in Christ for His glory. How we are to, as a saved people, fulfill God's plan in salvation. So our third and final point is really the main application. Understand the mission of the church. Understand the mission of the church. It's Ephesians 3.10 again. God has saved individuals so that through the church, the assembly of those believers, His wisdom might be made known according to His eternal purpose accomplished in Jesus our Lord. It's not just seeing individuals converted. It's about congregating converts into assemblies that reflect what Jesus did in His first coming and that what will be forever in His second coming. This is what God is up to in history, past, present, and future. This is what He's doing. So, if we think about our mission as a church, unreached peoples, those peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation that that Jesus has, has bought with His blood, that they might come together underneath His Lordship for the praise of God's glorious grace, those people must be brought in. It is not enough for you to be a Christian and, for ju- and just be forgiven all by yourself. That just stops short of God's purpose in saving you. God is saving a bride from among the hundreds of millions of the Shaikh in Bangladesh. Bangladesh. Zero percent of which know Him now. God will save some. That's why Jesus shed His blood on the cross. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing if we're content to set up a comfortable gathering of people who look just like us? 
and who think just like us and act like just us? What are we doing if we are content with the gospel message just remaining with us? What are we doing if we are not partnering together to reach the Bahini people of Iraq? And not just reach them with news, but to see them gathered into churches where they can live out their salvation with others to the glory of God. I'll tell you what we're doing. Something other than what God is doing. Something other than what God has planned. And friends, I don't want to be doing that. Now, I'm thankful that I'm speaking to a church that I can encourage in this regard. Um, Don't overlook your, your giving to the cooperative program. It's what allows people like Ryan and Elizabeth to go and do just these things. I know there are individuals here that give to other missions organizations. I know that you have partnered with me to to reach what qualifies as an unreached people group right here in America. The latest statistics on Rhode Island from 2011 say that it's 1% evangelical. Partnerships are simply invaluable to, to the work. And we talked a lot about this yesterday. And if you were unable to make it yesterday, I just want to strongly encourage you to clear your calendars and make sure that you're there for next year. But how do we go about doing it here in Loudoun County? How is Hamilton supposed to gather in people that Christ has died for in this area and become this new creation that displays the manifold wisdom of God? So how are you supposed to live out your purpose for which God saved you together? Again, part of it is partnerships and going out to the nations because that's necessary. But how do you do it among yourselves here? So here's the application. First of all, we we must be people committed to the truth of God's word. God has always sanctified and created His people by His Word. Again, go back right back to Genesis. God speaks and creation comes into this existence. God calls Abraham out and it's by a promise that God is committed to creating a new people. It's when He gives His, his Word to, to His people at Mount Sinai that a new nation is created. It's when Ezekiel prophesies to the dry bones and these dry bones come to life. It's when Jesus comes as the Word of God. And creates his people with his blood. And then it's as the church goes, proclaiming the word of God, that people are saved and and gathered in. We we, we must be people committed to the word. And Jesus commanded that that we do what he does in Matthew 28, because there are people who are currently dead in their sins, under the wrath of God, bound for hell, and the only thing that can save them is hearing the word about Christ. Romans 10, 17. We, we have to be people who are committed to that truth and who share it. Hamilton, be, be a people of the Word. Because of the Gospel, every Christian has a Word ministry in the church at some level. So, uh, this does not say it's the only ministry that you're to have here. Some, some of you are gifted for, for uh, ministry you know, of service that upholds the Word. Uh, some of you are faithful examples of the Word. Uh, but it's... Sh- but it should be one of your main ministries. So if you look at chapter 4, verse 15, Paul writes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with it, is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up itself in love. The idea is that, that this body that's joined together is built up by the word of truth. 
the word about Christ. We, we grow up underneath Him, underneath His Lordship, by His word. So we tell people when they join Grace Harbor that their main ministry, their main job is to get to know people. That's the way we want them serving, because the primary way they serve is, is with a word ministry. And so that means everyone here needs to have some theological depth to you. You need, you need to... You need to study God's Word. You need to read good books. You want to hear sermons and put them into practice. I'm thankful that this is a church where you're being exposed to what God has said so that its truth shapes your life rather than letting your needs for life shape what you hear from God's Word. You, you, you get expositional preaching. Praise God. Secondly, we must be a people that apply the truth of God's Word in the Gospel by living out in loving community with one another. After all of this theology about salvation and, and the church, the first application that Paul makes is this, chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So what is, the, what is living in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received in Christ? It's eagerly maintaining unity in the spirit of the bond of peace. That's what a worthy calling looks like. Every Christian, I, this is, I want us to, to hear this, every Christian in this room must realize that if you fail to live out your faith with other believers in a local church context, then you fundamentally misunderstand what it means to be a Christian. Fundamentally. That's a strong word. So don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that being a part of a church in a committed fashion is necessary for becoming a Christian. That being a part of a church is necessary for being saved. I am not saying that. But to faithfully live out the purpose for which God saved you requires a local church. It requires your ability to live in fellowship with other believers in unity and love. Or else you are not living out what God says He purposed in Jesus to bring everything together in Him. If you're not displaying a profound unity with others because of your common faith in Christ, you are failing to show off that multifaceted wisdom in the gospel. And that's the mission of the church. It is to make God's wisdom known. This is the main evangelistic program that God has. This is His tool. This is where our power is going to come from. It's where the gospel is experienced. Again, think back to what Jesus said to His followers in John chapter 13. A new command I give to you, to love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another as I have loved you. God's love for us is radical. We are not like Him. He is holy and without sin. He is perfect. We are none of those things. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. He proved His love in that while we were sinners, unlike Him, Christ died for us. Church is messy. It hurts. It's not easy to love people who are different from you. That's the whole point. That love is different in kind from the world's love. 
that love is similar in kind to God's love. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? The local church is about loving people who have nothing in common with us except for Christ. Jews and Gentiles were hostile towards one another, but suddenly they are serving together. Friends, only the power of the Holy Spirit does that through the gospel. So we don't show off the power of the gospel by by being a gathering of one type of person. The the wisdom of God is not seen in a church for college students. Sometimes people assume that because I was young and am young and I was playing a church in Providence among college students that that we were trying to start a church for college students. And I said, no, that's antithetical to the gospel. Anytime that a church would structure itself to intentionally reach one type of person, they are not doing work that is reflective of what God has done in Christ and bringing Jew and Gentile together. You know, people understand why similar people with similar interests get together. Even the pagans do that, Jesus says. I'm thankful that I I live in a place where uh, we have the opportunity for, for, for black, white, Asian, Hispanic, old, rich, young, poor, educated and uneducated, Yankee and transplanted Southerner. Get together and love one another and serve one another week after week in the same place. That speaks to a greater power and a greater love than anything else we might have in common. And so it shows off the power of the gospel. Friend, if you're here again and you're, you're not a Christian, then I would just ask you, what are your daily activities and the kind of people that you find yourself spending time with tell you about what you're living for. If you're here and you're a Christian, then you find yourself in parts of the world you never thought you'd be in, doing things you never thought you would do, with people that you would have never planned to be there doing the things that you're doing with. Like starting a Christian school on a reservation in South Dakota. I was just sitting over there and blessed by this, Anne. Your life doesn't make sense. (laughs) Unless there's a resurrection of the dead. Christians' lives are to be pitied if there's no resurrection. But because of this supernatural love, we find ourselves with, with... quirky people and different personalities and just places we'd never be. Now, we all have our challenges to to diversity and the the diversity that this community displays is going to look different than the the diversity that uh, Grace Harbor displays in Providence. But, But 1 Corinthians 12 seems to suggest that diversity is healthy and it shows off the gospel. So we don't want to compartmentalize ourselves in the church so that we don't have to do the difficult job of loving people that we would never otherwise get together with. It's when a church with different people and their their quirks and blemishes love one another, even when they sin against one another, that great commission, commission work happens. 
Now, some of you are sitting here going, now, who are the quirky people that... It's you, you know, here. <laughs> We're all just strange. And so when we love one another, what Jesus says happens. This community is going to know that you follow him. Jesus prayed in John seventeen twenty one, May they all be one in us, so the world may believe you sent me. seems like a big part of Jesus' plan for evangelism was his people's love for one another, their unity. Uh, if, you're, if you're here, and part of the reason that you reject Christianity is because you've been in churches precisely where there isn't love and unity and peace, uh, then we just want to point out that the Bible agrees with you. It's, it's wrong. And it's not Christianity. I was just asking you to examine whatever church that was that you're thinking of. Uh, just ask if, if the gospel was the main thing there, or if everybody there assumed the gospel and that they had graduated from it and it became about something else. Scripture is very confident that, that this, this loving one another, will display God's wisdom and glory. And unfortunately, in all of our great plans of evangelism, there are books and programs out there. Rarely does any of them ever say, lay down your life for your brothers and sisters in a local church. Live in biblical community. But friends, I, I can tell you, one of my good friends who has served in uh, the Middle East in a Muslim country for over 20 years said that he figured out the silver bullet in converting Muslims. Ready? Prolonged exposure to the Word of God. Prolonged exposure to Christians. Go figure. Grace Harbor exists in a very secular and spiritually hardened context. I remember not too long ago, I was sitting in a coffee shop, and there was a man there pleading with another man not to kill himself. And he was saying, do anything you can not to do this. Get help. It doesn't matter where you get it. Just whatever works for you, get it. Just keep Jesus out of it. I was thinking to myself, what is wrong with Jesus? But that's the context that, that we're serving in. And by God's grace, I can tell you that the church is growing Good things are happening, and we can't point to one particular thing that has made the church grow. I'm happy about that. I don't think it's because of someone's great ideas or any particular talent. It's certainly not because of me. But I often say that the remarkable thing about Grace Harbor is that there's nothing remarkable about it, and yet it's still remarkable. There's this life that God has created. And it's affecting the people around our community. And friends, I don't think we want to be able to point to something that we're doing and be able to, it, for it to be explained away by an outsider. We don't want people to say, oh, this is why that church is growing. They're doing this. If that's there, just get it out. We want to confound people with the gospel. Church is a picture of not only what Christ has done in the gospel already, but of what he's doing in the new creation. And so for our own sakes, for the sakes of others, let's challenge ourselves not to be satisfied with cool stuff. Let's work for the slow, messy, unpackaged fruit of deep, kingdom-minded relationships. Something that Jesus said will display a love that is different in kind from the world's. A love that will say to the world around us, they belong to me.
a love that would have compassion upon people, the, the, the Karmanji. Billions of people who do not know him, that we would love them. That we would want to go to them in our love for Christ so that they might come to Him and live underneath His Lordship. That this world might be filled with with God's glory. That's to happen through the church. We want to see places that are built up that way and it's to happen here as well. If I had more time, I would tell you about Casey and Chris and Otto and others who, who have given their lives to Christ in part because they say they've never seen a community that loves one another, like Grace Harbor, just commended the gospel. So, in conclusion, we often think about individual Christians being on fire for the Lord and individual Christians going out as as missionaries. they're, They're individuals out there and they're the ones doing it. But the Bible does not talk about Christians There's a bunch of individual matches out there on fire. It talks about a blazing furnace. It is when people follow Christ together and partner together to make His wisdom known that the light of Christ and the power of Christ is fully put on display and the fuel that stokes the flames is the gospel. I pray that both of our churches will be furnaces and I pray that our partnership together will help fan the flames for the praise of of God's glory here in Hamilton and in Providence and among the nations. Because this is what God is doing in the world. Church, it is our privilege and our calling and our joy to make His wisdom known. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Christ that when we were at enmity with You, And with one another, you sent him to die that we might be reconciled to to you and to one another and so display what you have purposed from the beginning, from before time began. That everything in heaven and earth, including people, might live underneath your rule in order to experience your joy for your everlasting glory. Do that here and come quickly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.